Hello, and welcome to Shush, the ironically titled podcast all about health libraries. My guest on this fourth episode is Anna Tynan. Anna is a research fellow with Darling Downs Health and a senior research fellow with the University of Queensland. Anna has worked and participated in research projects in a number of different rural, regional and international settings, including Emerald, the Hunter Valley, India, Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu. Anna is particularly interested in the translation of research into health policy and practice, with previous research focusing on social determinants of health and people's lived experiences of health and health systems strengthening. Anna and I are colleagues in Darling Downs Health, and we're actually constantly referring clinicians to each other, depending on what stage they're at in their research projects. Anna's not a health librarian, for which she is forgiven, but health science libraries and health science researchers clearly work very closely together, and at its best, the relationship can be very fruitful and mutually beneficial. As a result, I think what Anna has to say in the following conversation is really a a most helpful perspective. I hope you enjoy, and thanks for listening. Good morning, and hello to Anna. How are you going today? Good, thank you, Daniel. Very good. Uh, welcome to the podcast about health libraries. Now, I realise you're an interloper who isn't actually a health librarian, which is entirely permissible, if not um, <laughs> you know, um, the most um, impressive thing that you could do with your life. You could probably have a, a late career switch into health libraries if you wish, but nevertheless... Okay. Um, how would you describe your current role if you're not a health librarian? Yeah, so I'm a. My title is research fellow with uh, Darling Downs and Queensland Health, um, but my role really doesn't so much involve um, research as much as you would expect in a university setting. It's actually more about support for uh, clinicians doing research uh, in the hospital sector. Um, so I guess a typical day um, would be me meeting with clinicians to discuss research ideas, decide on whether they're actually doing research or a quality type activity, um, working on the small amount of projects that I do myself as a research fellow, um, but also, um, I guess above all that, looking at uh, ways to try and improve uh, research capability uh, in the workforce, um, uh, within the clinician workforce mainly. Yeah, and so that's across the board, sort of allied health, nursing, medical? Absolutely. At allied health, nursing, medical, um, we actually, our scope doesn't really end there. We also are including uh, education, administration type level, but the majority sure. of research is um, clinician based. And you made the distinction there between research and a quality activity. Can you expand on that a little bit? Or? Yeah, 
describe so, what the differences are? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think when people like, I guess, clinicians are working in the health sector, uh, improvement or in looking at ways to improving their practice is, uh, I guess, fundamental and somewhat part of their day-to-day -day thinking. So um, at a very novice level of researchers, uh, they often making the distinction between quality and research is a little bit difficult because they see what they're doing in a quality activity as research. Exceptionally important part of operating a quality and safe hospital service, um, but there is a distinct difference in that research uh, is more about um, testing new ideas, new interventions, things that haven't been done before and in, or in the particular context um, and adding to the knowledge base rather than looking at current practices and reforming them. So that, yeah. hopefully that covers it, yes. Yeah, and so I guess quality activities don't necessarily end up beyond the confines of their immediate circumstance, whereas research typically would flow into scholarly publishing and you know, wider communications, conferences, that type of thing. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Right. So how did you end up working in clinical research? Did you always want to be supporting research from a young child? Or? <laughs> I would say that I'm a somewhat accidental uh, researcher. <laughs> I mean, um, it's and probably the title of a book, is it? <laughs> I think there's definitely a title called Accidental <laughs> Hospital Librarian. Accidental, so brilliant. Yeah. So it was a series of events and uh, journeys in my life that led to me to be where I am. Um, I perhaps pursued an interest in, um, I guess, delivery of health in um, complex environments. So I went and worked in uh, like global health initiatives in HIV and malaria, um, but interestingly having a background in occupational therapy. Um, and from there... So you I started guess, as a practising OT, basically? Yes, I, I started as a practising occupational therapist, yep. <laughs> but sort of broadened that um, into kind of the public health arena um, yeah. and got interested in, I guess, the application of um, health systems in complex environments under uh, like rolling out programs that have been RCT tested um, and told that that was the best one but actually in context may not actually work um, which led to a PhD um, and subsequent <laughs> uh, research by LA. So I guess my area is not wasn't directly in clinical research, but more in health systems research, and how the but the interface between those two things is quite, to me, quite uh, important and um, apparent, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I and, science yeah, 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 absolutely. So I guess uh, the reason why I ended up in this space is that one, I'm the the health service that I'm working in is rural and remote and is of interest to me but also I have this ability now to combine my OT clinical um, uh, working knowledge with my research interests um, so that's that's basically it 
rather than I guess a purely academic setting where it would yes, be absolutely a different absolutely. focus and different people and yeah absolutely so, yeah, yeah. It, it seems a nice mix in terms of what your interests are and what you're actually able to practically do day to day. That's correct, yeah. So in terms of your role within Darling Downs Health, um, is it a good fit? Do you have to sort of explain yourself to lots of different people? Um, <laughs> yes, I would, yes. Um, listen, I'd like the answer to it, is it a good fit? I believe it is a good fit. It's a necessary role, but yeah. is it understood? No, <laughs> and I think, <laughs> and I think that's you know part and part. You know, a part of that is being one FTE in a population that is, you know, I think three thousand staff members. So, and also in a context where service delivery and you know care of patients really is at the forefront, and research sort of sits sort of in a come, you know, somewhat is the the you know the backing to it all, but not right, yeah. always up front. Of course. Um, yeah. The classic hospital librarian sort of disappointment is, oh, we have a library? So I imagine yes. it's a bit similar. <laughs> oh, there's Very someone I can help my research project? What? Yes. Absolutely true, Daniel, yes. But, yeah, I mean, what are you going to do? It's, you know, as you say, when you're one to 3,000 or... One and a half to three thousand, like you can't bite the whole elephant at once, or other such mixed metaphors. You just gotta work with those who do get it and champion it. Yeah. And push yeah. On Indeed. 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 Do you feel like the role is well kind of resourced? Are you able to do the things that you, know, you feel are important in terms of making research happen and expanding its um, capacity within the current health service? Yes, I would say with just a quick answer is no. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then again, it comes back to, I guess, the understanding of um, resources required um, and even at a simple level, things like, um, you know, software packages for uh, research analysis um, is not at the forefront of the hospital, so constantly kind of begging for these sorts of things to be available and trying to make people understand that this is really important if you are trying to do research, you need statistical software, you need um, other types of software to be actually able to achieve um, that sort of thing. So I do find, I have found that quite interesting because I have moved from, you know, being a part of the university sector where that's just a given, like you are granted with that straight away, but here it's very much, uh, you, you have to kind of uh, wave the flag a little bit more. Um, and I guess the other thing is that we never, we are doing all our support um, without resources, so you do have to rely on um, either linking in with the goodwill of other people who may be able to add in bits and pieces of support. Um, we have a quite, we have a quite a close relationship with the Rural Clinical School UQ that sits on campus at Toowoomba, but a lot of that is quite voluntary with the support they give um, to our, our clinicians. Um, so it is not very well resourced and perhaps 
not well appreciated at the time and perhaps the money that would be provided to get research to a good quality standard. Yeah, because you're always competing against more nursing labour, more drugs, you know, yes. different um, clinical, you know, directly clinical implements, tools, yeah, all yes. those sorts of things. And so, as you say, the you know, $3,000 for a SPSS one-year subscription that might result in papers four or five years down the track is sort of a yes. challenging sell, I guess. Eh? It is. It's a hard yes, It's a hard sell, yes. But without it, then you're sort of really not getting anywhere or I imagine researchers then um, can give up a lot quicker or, you know, yeah, having to go outside of the health service, which is exactly. an ideal terms of finding people who can absolutely. help. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you, despite all of those constraints, are you able to find keen researchers and people that want to do actual practitioner-based research? Absolutely, and I think that's, yeah, despite all this, it definitely does bubble away um, in people's interests. Um, and we've had some, I guess, great success stories of um, clinicians, I guess, getting on with the job and actually really engaging in, uh, like, research projects and becoming more research savvy. Um, I am always amazed because, as I said, it's not well resourced, not well recognised, although over my time uh, with the service, it definitely has started to get a little bit more recognition. Um, but yes, no, we definitely have. Um, and I think that for these ones, it tends to relate more into a genuine passion in research. And so uh, their desire isn't as um, it's more alt I think I find it more altruistic in some ways compared to you know some in the university sector where these guys are actually just doing it for the love of trying to improve service um, which is kind of a cool aspect of my job yeah can you give some examples of um, yeah the cool things that get done despite oh. everything or? yeah I think I think one of the most amazing people we have is a fellow by the name of Peter Gilbert, who's a, a pharmacist who basically worked his appetite in research um, with a colleague back in the 80s um, and they just happened to work on a paper that got published in the Lancet and that's sort of like the goal, you know, as we <laughs> get the gold standard of Lancet and it's just, and it, he was doing it outside of work hours and, and he always talks about it, that kind of wetting the appetite and from then on he just enjoyed um, the ability to I guess uh, be involved in working on his ideas and publishing them um, if you talk to him he's not interested in doing a PhD or going down any of that kind of path because he believes he's, you know, he's not really on his radar however he probably has written few PhDs technically <laughs> in the amount yeah, of work he's produced during that time. Um, I think he's up to he, 75 publications. So unbelievable. I asked, him, <laughs> I asked him if he'd make 100 by the time he retired and he reckons not. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, It'd interfere with his hockey time if he had to do a PhD. But, yes, that's exactly right. Yes, no, so he's just got this absolute, um, yeah, like just 
real passion for it that has just driven him and made him turn up to work one hour earlier to get stuff done and finish a little bit later to finish. He just he, We always talk about in the clinical research that people don't have time, but he's just been this person that has been able to um, work in with the clinical restraints of what he's needed to do and achieve um, well. But it does take a special person, yeah. But, and he also, like, he mentors others as well, like pretty much everyone who's come through that oncology pharmacy department has their name on papers because he's yes. able to get them um, doing and thinking about it and upskilled and, you know, they're publishing in BMJ, all sorts of places. So yes, Not just, absolutely. you know, oncology pharmacy journals, but the wider um, literature as well. So. Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. So I think you you would be very um, privileged to have had a rotation with Peter um, on that in that path. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So are there areas in which you'd like to see more research, but are sort of not really happening at the moment, or? You know, whether from individuals or groups or professions or departments or areas where you think there's you know, lots of good things happening but just aren't actually turning into research projects? Yeah, and I think I wouldn't be able to name them all and I think that definitely happens. Um, I also teach into an undergraduate in research methods um, for allied health um, and I think some, like, and I, and from my position with research fellow and looking across the disciplines, I think one of the biggest issues is people's first exposure to research is usually an undergraduate and it's often a really traumatic or, um, you know, portrayed in a, a way that is either so boring or, you know, by the end of the course or whatever the exposure was, it's almost defined that they're never going to do it again. <laughs> And I so I think in some ways some of those that have had that experience um, who've already made up their mind that you know they oh I need to they're never going to go any further you know I think it's a bit of an, a shame and perhaps a, uh, an issue with undergraduate training um, across it's the board. Funny. Yeah, it's, it's funny you mention that because quite uh, time with that number I reckon we'll get people doing yeah higher degrees who've got you know, a fair chunk of the way through and then they hit their research unit and that's when they have to come find the library because they just find it so bewildering and um, they, you know, they say, oh, you know, I've been able to do everything this far but this unit is really, you know, a nightmare and I've heard some people say they feel like they've had to give up their degree because of the research unit and all these yeah, sorts of things. Right. And, yes. Um Generally we can get them through but, yeah, it's... Um, it's that research unit that seems to have an outsized negative influence on a lot of people. Yes, absolutely. And I think even if it was a positive experience, the you know, the collective of the population tend to sort of talk about it so negative it does bring it down. Yeah. So I I think that's one of the hard battles um that we face <laughs> and I don't know the solution to that. Um, but, you know, I think we need to recognise that some of these undergraduates need to, need to come out with, I guess, better appreciation for research or better, like, not fear of research um, 
but also recognise that you you know it doesn't have to be this massive, huge, involved project. Simple things are also very important um, and can make a contribution. That there's a spectrum of research. When I did my occupational therapy degree, there was no talk of qualitative research. It was just quantitative. It was not, you know, we didn't even cover it, <laughs> which I know that has changed since. But um, uh, and I suspect I'm still working with a, a workforce that have had that experience as well. Um, yeah, so it's yeah. frustrating, isn't it? Because it is. You know, so it much is. of healthcare is, is a qualitative experience, and you know, oftentimes things are turned into numbers that aren't necessarily. You know, those numbers don't necessarily tell the story that they're led to. So it's the reality is much more complicated than um, yes. what it's often cast as. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, I sit in the mixed methods kind of thing. So when I'm working with yeah. clinicians, and if it's the first time that they have always assumed it's got to be a quantitative approach, when we actually drill down their questions and I let them know that this is a qualitative project and, and sometimes the personality or the skill set of the clinician may prefer the qualitative or the quantitative, you, you can start, you know, seeing some relief. <laughs> That's you know, actually, no, my question doesn't need an RCT or a complicated survey design or anything like that. This is actually a complicated and involved qualitative project. Um, but I do find it still remarkable that the first assumption is that it has to be some complicated stats um, um, project. And that perhaps does turn people off a bit. <laughs> Yeah. So even if you get through the research barrier, then you hit the statistics barrier. And yes. 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 Absolutely. 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 Do you see? Um, you mentioned the appeal for this health service was the rural and remote aspects, for which we yes. certainly do. A fair chunk of southern Queensland falls into our remit. Are there yes. kind of Quite big differences between, so Toowoomba is the main urban area, you know, 110,000 population, you know, decent size hospital, all of that, but obviously yep. the rurals are, yeah, small population, small staffing, small everything, but yep. big questions that can do with research. Um, yeah. Is there a particular challenge in that area to upskill and get research that's done on important questions? Yeah, indeed. I think the, the and that's probably um, the rules have been somewhat of a, ne not neglected, but they are a, um, uh, if you think there's a time restraint on those in the regional hospitals, in the rules it's, you know, triple that. Um, and, you know, we've been in places where we've got research grants for rule-based projects and this is to, you know, to get people offline to do a project, uh, a research project, but there's just no one to backfill them for that two days a week <laughs> because they are the only oral health therapist or physio in town. Um, so that you do have that complicated challenge um, with getting things working. Um, but yes, dread incredibly important topics that are probably overlooked. Um, I would also say rural and remote 
health topics in general. Um, if you're talking about the competitive uh, research industry, perhaps aren't the um, gold star um, options um, and often neglected by city-based researchers. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Or I guess you also have the kind of fly-in, fly-out, you know, treating your rural population simply as a, you know, a bit of a, a wrinkle and a point of difference and kind of come in, you know, do the questionnaires or whatever and then leave again but not actually embed or translate that research to that particular area. Um, I imagine no, not at all. Yes, very yeah. true. Very true. So, um, despite all this, you know, not quite getting to research or being quite difficult, have you got a feel for um, who is, you know, keen to not just sort of do research as a one-off, but a kind of embedding a research culture, perhaps, and shifting more in that direction? Yes, I think there are key, definitely key champions. Um, and um, oh gosh, almost like to do a research project on what are the personality traits or reasons why people become <laughs> in these situations. <laughs> because yeah, um, on a very subjective level, I can probably, I, from my experience now, um, in the first half an hour of talking with them, I can kind of tell if they are going to become these ones. But yes. <laughs> Very subjective. Yeah. yeah, very subjective. Um, uh, because there is a genuine love and a passion and an interest and they're wanting to extend what they're doing in their day-to-day. -day. They're a little bit bored clinically. You know, there's, there's a few other factors that kind of go into uh, building this up. Um, yes. And is that research oftentimes like attached to further study or I mentioned Peter Gelbar before that it's not, but you know, is there I guess a, a real mix? Are there some just wanting for the clinical or some wanting the clinical and then moving into that sort of high degree research kind of motion yeah. or others doing the high degree and then come across to research or Yeah, um I think it definitely stems more like with our population, definitely stems more from the clinical. And I think my role, yeah. in some ways, there might be a bit of a bias to encouraging higher degree. Um, I've obviously had that conversation with Peter and he's out lightly said no. <laughs> so it is somewhat like it's, it's part of, uh, I guess, my remit um, in some ways to, I guess, encouraging or... Um, suggest, okay, you're doing this massive project. Did you realise you could actually get an MPhil for it? <laughs> and that's a bit of a um, awareness drawing kind of aspect. Um, but um, I think the balance between uh, like an academic degree in a university with those that are clinicians first is a hard balance. Um, mm. particularly with career progression and um, because ultimately they work somewhat against each other. Um, uh, yeah, I think so because if you've done a PhD at this stage in 
um, in the health service that you aren't, there isn't much uh, recognition in career progression. I don't think you, if you're at your kind of like in a sort of a senior level, there's not much more you can do. Actually adding to or doing research often, uh, I should should say I'm talking nursing and allied health here, medicine is different, um, doesn't actually progress you as a clinician. Um, so those that want to progress or feel the need to both would leave the health service to go into the university sector because that's the only way you can progress that. Right. Yeah. Unless you're doing Med the research simply to improve the clinical yeah, yeah. yeah. Outputs and practices. And so we, I do find that we do have some hidden PhDs within the health service, but basically they've been done, finished and shelved and somewhat their skills haven't been reenacted. And that's, that's very, it's a, it's a, it's an unfortunate, um, situation. Um, so the kind of that, there's a, they are, um, in Europe and the and uh, America, they're really starting to recognise what they call clinical scientists, um, whereby the person is the clinician is recognised as a clinician three days of work, but they also recognise that they have two days of research a week, and that's due to having a PhD and career progressions and interactions with unis, et cetera, so they, but they sit in the health service. Um, we probably in Australia see that mostly with medicine, um, but again, it's still a bit, it's not, it's not as um, easy for them either, but I'd love, it'd be great that we had that as a standard um, across all professions um, to recognise that researching clinicians actually still want to be working with patients and not stuck um, external and teaching. Yeah, and I imagine too that that, and not just to have those roles, but there would be so many flow-on effects in terms of you know, getting the right type of questions being answered for research because they're able to straddle those um, boundaries and um, the mentoring role for, again, practitioners moving into beginning research and um, and coming back in the other way and translating the research evidence back into practice and yes, really having an understanding, you know, uh, a more sophisticated understanding of um, research evidence and then how it can be used or how it should be sought out to be used. Um, yeah. yeah, you could really see that where that divide now is probably a bit more fixed, isn't it? Mm. Very fixed, yeah, very fixed. Yeah. And so I guess alluding to that, um, do you see quite big differences between the type of research that's done within hospital and health settings and the type of research that's done in the, the university and academic you know, health sciences areas? Yeah. Listen, I think there's still a difference. Um, I think there has been significant uh, changes to try and improve <laughs> that gap. There was, you know, again, when I did my undergraduate, um, most of the, the research that was done from our professor's point of view did seem somewhat removed from when I went out practically um, doing 
the, like, the practical component of my undergraduate. Um, so there's definitely been a huge push to make sure there's a little bit more overlap of clinical clinician or observed problems and uh, research needs. But um, I think in the health research industry, that is always going to be a hard one to tackle uh, because basically career progression in academia uh, and grant acquisition is often based on you having a very niche and focused research agenda, um, which tends to start moving more and more away from real practical um, application. Um, that's mm. just a personal opinion. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, yeah, so the way health researchers are structured, um, you kind of, if you're going to go down there, you're going to be programmed to become more and more niche. Um, Do people like NHMRC and other funding agencies absolutely. have a role to play in Absolutely, absolutely. They have a huge role to play. And again, they do go through their reforms and reconsiderations and um, they've had, a, in the last two years, reviewed their uh, research grants where now uh, publication history is the only thing that you report on is because you get you get marked as a researcher and then your project gets marked. It used to be how many grants you got, what type of grants, what level of grants and and whatever was also marked. But now that's just output and, and they also measure impact. I also have my issues about this, but I guess it's in some ways um, opens the uh, pool a bit wider because basically... If you hadn't been achieving grants from day one of your PhD, there was no way you're going to progress within HMRC's uh, fellowship model. Really? Wow. Yes. No. Not at all. Not at all. Um, so yeah. So that 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 has. Uh, although I'm yet to sort of see what impact that has, and if the same names are coming up, and uh, it's still, I think, nine. 10% success rate or whatever for the actual grants, but the, the focus is trying to open the pool um, and recognise the broad experience of those applying. Yeah. And again, there's still always a need for that, you know, blue sky research and yes, not yes. focusing on um, what we're doing now, but also yeah. what we're doing now is in need of research and, um, you know, replication studies and all these sorts of things. And so yeah. if it's, yeah, if it's only money's being, or the big money and big projects are being poured into things that are kind of maybes and a long way off and, um, yeah, that type of area, then we end up just lumping along and doing kind of really localised improvements but not actually finding that systemic improvement through research and its applications. Yeah. So. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess the big not the only but the biggest crossover in terms of the, um, you know, your role in research and certainly a health library role is around 
I guess research outputs and scientific publications, you know, clinical literature, that type of thing. Um, it, it certainly, I think, not exclusive. There's a lot more. I think even in our you know, small ways here, we're sort of blending the roles a bit in terms of um, uh, yeah, you know, support for um, researchers you know, right the way through the cycle and whether it's just a space to come in to talk to people, whether it is you know, the library sharing in some of the subscriptions for stats packages, those sorts of things, um, librarians sort of upskilling around um, research methodologies and uh, metrics, all that type of thing. So and I think yeah. certainly universities are, are leaning hard into that kind of area too and shifting their models more towards that. Um, yeah. But in terms of the clinical literature, and again, like you know, there's no way that um, I would be doing your role or your colleague's role. That's, I think, a very you know, specialised and necessarily so role. Um, but in terms of clinical literature, um, how do you see it fitting into the research cycle? You know, from your perspective, librarians always are very um, dismissive of any clinician's ability to search and we just think we should be doing everybody's searching or you know, teaching them but still knowing that they're probably going to be a bit rubbish at it and that's probably <laughs> a bit overselling our own skills or underselling our days but you know, without us feeling superior we just don't need to exist then so we have our little moments. <laughs> from your perspective, um, are researchers competent in finding and reviewing literature at the start and, you know, kind of making sure that their question hasn't already been sufficiently answered and, and drawing from the literature to support their own hypothesis? Yeah, um, I think, so I'd say outright no, like the, for the general, like this is nursing, medicine, allied health, I'd say no. Um, I think, uh, but each but each discipline kind of comes with their uh, different specialty. And then again, I'll say that it's probably a little bit of a issue with undergraduate focus on that sort of thing and the purpose yeah. of it and why you would need it. Um, My colleague, he talks about the after-sales service that we provide for universities. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, do I think clinicians need to be responsible for their literature searches and not rely heavily on librarians? I would say yes, because if you can't understand a paper or its flaws, then you won't be able to run a uh, good quality research project. They, can't, they really fit uh, closely together. Um, so allowing a clinician to do the literature, read it through and understand the level of quality of it is really important. Um, but I don't, yeah, but at the same time, I think they still do need a bit of help in that area. Um, yeah, and so you feel like, um, do you think, sort of undergraduates now from 10 years ago or something or any 
better or worse or different? I in don't terms think of they're any better or worse. Out of anything, I don't think there's definitely not, not much change. Yeah. Um, a shame, yeah. isn't it? Because it is a shame. It is a shame. Uh, I mean, there's... You know, Medline has 25 million references and they add 800,000 references a year, so there's a lot of research output, and if we're not able to yeah. actually read it and it. use it, yeah. even not just for research, but just to inform you know, clinical practice and change where we need to, um, yeah. yeah, there's gaps there, isn't there? Ah, oh, huge gaps, huge gaps. Um, yes. Um and that's, I guess, the real, you know, the exceptional importance of libraries, uh, health libraries remaining in the system, yeah. uh, because it's a huge problem, and um, you know, it definitely requires that ongoing support at this stage. Do you find um, that? Sorry, go on. Oh, sorry. The only thing I'd say is that. Um, I guess to the librarians, I do find that the clinicians working in their niche area, they do have that clinical insight into the application of some of the research studies um, yep. and can criti they critique it from a different point, uh, point of view. Um, and I sometimes, I sort of, in reflection, kind of underestimate that. I uh, used to underestimate that a little bit, but it's actually once you kind of work on the same page with them on that and understand that's what they're critiquing it from their clinical perspective. Um, it's, not necessarily kind of, the research methodology. No, not at all. Not at all. Critical appraisal but, principles. Yeah. Yeah. No, not at all. But it, it has an important place, a complementary mm. place. But you know, I guess yeah, just, just learning to work with that a bit more. I find that a challenge sometimes too where people have their research question in mind and then come to the literature and kind of almost expect you know, 14 papers that exactly match their, their ideas. <laughs> um, whereas, again, you know, what gets published doesn't necessarily um, you know, directly correspond to that and the point is to, yeah. to draw in a broad base of literature and then um, from that to determine where your question lies. So, yeah. Um, but that, that's all education and you know experience and ten thousand hours and all that. So. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Do you think there's a right balance between, I guess, primary research and systematic review research and you know, meta-analysis? Um, like, I don't know. I, I get the sense that. A lot more, yeah. People are wanting to do sys reviews, and they feel like they're a bit low-hanging fruit, a bit easier to do than actually going out into the field and, you know, getting ethics and doing all that for for patient and um, you know hospital-based research. Um, is that like? Would you share that sense? And is that a right sort of? Balance? Are there too yeah. many systematic reviews? I don't know. Yeah, um, I guess there's a couple of things. Uh, is one in the academic university world, um, what the systematic review does is that it produces a researcher's um, citation index very high. <laughs> so there is a drawer for a 
academic research at a university to have a systematic review because you are awarded on citation. So there's that part of it. Um, there's also research money in health is scarce. <laughs> yeah. And you don't, if you don't have any project money or you are, you know, very limited in resources, the opportunity to do systematic reviews are actually, um, I guess, a saving grace for the uh, for a lot of the health research workforce. Yeah. Um, so that's a definite reason why you'd find that. Um, the other thing is that um, there's uh, because of this citation and publication push. Um, Academics at universities, there's almost been an influx of uh, them recruiting PhD students or high degree students because they have the potential to produce publications under them. I'm talking very, <laughs> um, you know, black and white here, thing, but I can kind yeah, of see yeah. how this press, press would have happened. Um, and at the start of any MPhil or PhD, it's very common for those high degree students to do systematic review as their chapter yeah. one. Yeah. So that's that's you kind of that's sort of some of it's not not just just about doing easy research. There's a couple of other things going on, I believe. Um, yeah. yeah, and I mean a well designed systematic review is a really important contribution ah, to totally. the field and yeah. able to, you know, give that um, perspective that individual studies um, you know can't necessarily, and so I think that's really important. I think one of the frustrations that certainly amongst my academic colleagues find is that, um, yeah, understanding the difference between a systematic review and actually, you know, what the work it takes to do that properly, you know, versus just a, a sort of pretty comprehensive literature review, which yes. you know, is still necessary, but is. You know, systematic review is a methodology on its own and a project yes. on its own as yes, opposed to plugging absolutely. the literature to another research. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yes, maybe. I mean, I guess talking about ability to critique uh, literature, you know, maybe one of the answers is to get every undergraduate to do a proper systematic review because then they know <laughs> what to do. But, um, yeah. but then that adds to that. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Even more so. Yeah. yeah. For applied ones, I worked with um, WHO on systematic reviews, but it was a, they were applied. They weren't going to um, peer-reviewed journals. That was to uh, uh, um, influence policy or uh, guidelines. So it was a very applied systematic review. So maybe that's maybe that's should be more focused on um, yeah. if you're going to go training clinicians. That's a huge area, isn't it? That sort of evidence-based policy making. Yeah. Um, I think it would be fantastic if even more <laughs> policy required you know, that kind of input and maybe yeah. you know, health is able to bring these methodologies. And, you know, again, I don't know, you know, but more so than other areas and um, I think there has been a shift in the last 10, 15 years towards, yeah, more evidence-driven, but um, you still see lots of discussions or lots of outputs, I guess, more in the political sphere that 
uh, seem to be quite shorn of evidence or yes. even, you know, <laughs> like efforts to generate good quality evidence and then draw decisions from that you know, as opposed to ideology or whatever else it might be. But um, yeah, yeah, all power to incorporating um, yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. what's already been done yeah, into that. Absolutely. So, so what is the process of publishing like from a researcher's perspective? So obviously there's researchers are beginning looking at the literature and then they go and do their work and then, you know, um, ideally for them and for their funders and people who count such things, all of that um, is to mm. publish. Is that mm-hmm. difficult? Um, do people start with the end in mind? How does it work? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. Um, I think if you asked me at the beginning of my research career, I would say, you know, it is difficult, it's horrible, general selection matters, <laughs> it's long, it's complicated. Um, but with experience, um, I now have resolved to understand these things a little bit more so they don't seem as difficult anymore. Um, I guess. Uh, so with regard to starting with the end in mind, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I think you do want that in research anyway. You don't want to be doing research to sit on your shelf and never be viewed again. Um, but I'd broadly, you know, I'd be broadly talking about how you, um, you publish, how you publish and how you communicate your research should be, um, front of your decisions about conducting that project right at the beginning. Um, so is it difficult? Um, I would say no. If you've got experience, it is not. Um, uh, and I think that I, people might have different answers to that uh, that, I, mm. that I might take. Um, I did work, I was trained with some very good um, academics uh, who provided me with a lot of skills and um, experience in selecting journals, working out uh, what your audience would be after, um, knowing, oh, sorry, selecting journals because of the audience you want to reach, um, but also how to write for journals and understand um, the nuances of them. Um, so, and I think you're, you're talking about if journal selection matters, um, was that? So, are, are you able, to, just to go back to that point, are you able yeah. to transfer those skills or teach those skills or <laughs> um, embolden others likewise? To yeah, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. You might have to ask my, uh, <laughs> those that I mentor <laughs> about whether I've done that. <laughs> um I'm sure they'd say yes, but yeah, but as I said, like I was working with, you know, um, I I guess I should also point out that in the scheme of uh, the university sector, I'm still technically early career, mid-career, you know, it's not that if I was put in, you know, in the university sector, I'd actually be quite junior. In our health service, I've become the senior researcher, (laughs) so it's a real kind of a flip around. So um, I will always be developing those skills, (laughs) and I've got a few more, few more years left to get 
I guess, as high as what my gurus were that I originally trained with. Don't have the thousand papers under your name yet or anything like that? <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think that's my aim either, Daniel. So <laughs> otherwise I, would, I wouldn't be working in the area that I'm working in. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so I guess I'm in a unique situation where I, if I go to publish, I'm publishing something I genuinely have a vested interest in. There was, a, you know, a needed uh, a, a feeling from the team that it was needed to be communicated, um, and of a topic that's of really interest to me. So I'm kind of lucky that way. Are you saying not every public paper is like that? I know, that? <laughs> not necessarily. <laughs> Oh man, I think <laughs> I might be telling all the secrets here. No, yeah, I think you know there are good altru. I should say there are good altruistic um, people oh. in the university sector, but there is definitely that publish or perish cycle. And I have seen some stuff come out that I am very curious as to why <laughs> the yeah. effort was put into it. Yeah. Yeah, and they, I mean, it's so difficult to not even police, but you know, a lot of it is just sort of, um, yeah, peer reviews, you know, editorships, all these sorts of things. There's so many different layers and levels and you know, competing areas and um, journals looking for content and all sorts of things, so it's not yeah. an easy fix to any of that, is it? No, not at all, not at all. Um, so do like post-publication metrics matter? Do they matter more in the academic setting than in a hospital setting? Like, Do you follow how many times your publications have been cited or those that you are mentoring and teaching? Um, yeah, so in an academic... So, yeah, like is that something that you report back on in terms of, you know, the output that we have here in Darling Downs Health? Is is that impact sort of measures useful to executives that type of thing? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think it has been um, uh, somewhat an experience in the transition or the working between the two sectors. Um, and I won't like obviously go into details of the other the university that I was working with uh, previously, but like every week we had a team meeting about our publication plans, and that started the day the week I started on the project when we hadn't even you know it was it's just totally <laughs> and why you hadn't completed that publication or produced anything or yeah and that was a weekly thing um, here they generally wouldn't um, you know so you know the, the, the probably the ideal expectation that it was you're producing maybe 10 to 15 publications a year um, I think different units might have different expectations but this just happened to be in the project that I was on whereas here um, during our lovely e-pads that we have, you know, suggesting that I had done four seemed like an amazing achievement. So it's very, very different. <laughs> yeah, right. It is very different. So po publication metrics still matter if 
as an individual researcher, I want to pursue a competitive research grant. They still matter. I'm never going to get away okay. from that because that's still the, still the, um, uh, the remit of how that's set up. Does it yeah. matter to our health service? No. Um, it will. I'm finding that now we're more linking in with um, the other HHSs and their approach. Uh, once research, because they are starting to um, to do their KPIs based on similar kind of university metrics, although they recognise that it's not the focus of uh, the health service ones, but there will be a time when we perhaps are compared to each HHS on metrics. Um, mm. It just might be a health service related toned down version. Yeah. Do you think there's better or broader ways you can measure the impact of publications? Uh, like at the moment, and again, I'm obviously not in um, the, like yourself, the minutiae of that so much, but uh, obviously, you know, things like um, citation counts and all that are, are still kind of at the bedrock of a lot of that, and, you know, there's other areas like social media mentions and, and yeah. these sorts of things. But I know I've always felt like we can't really capture, again, how many clinicians read a paper and then kind of reflect on it or makes a difference, you know, or um, how many times it's, it does make it into a WHO yeah. policy sort of document, yeah. things like that. Um, I almost feel like there should be some way in which you can, uh, maybe even like a Facebook like or something, but a way in which, yeah, you know, that made a difference or that was useful to me. Yeah, I agree. And I think this has been of uh, much debate uh, in yeah. the community and that's why it's sort of either, even that move towards altmetrics and social media thing is fairly recent. Um, but it's still so removed from actual impact, which is what I'm, you know, sensing you're talking about is does someone actually read this and make sense of it and change practice because of it or improve their service because of it and save millions of lives because of this? <laughs> and I think... Or, or disagree with it. and Or disagree with it, know, yeah. Think about it in that way, you know, engage yeah. with it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I guess, yeah, that's right. Okay, good point. So engage with it. Um, I agree. So I think even the impact score is more about um, that the, the publication has been received positively and assume positive things at the forefront there. Um, you're not even, we're not even measuring if it's been received negatively, are we? Um, yeah, true. So I, yeah, so, bonus, mm. oh, totally. So I think the issue is that we like numbers, we like ratings, we like <laughs> uh, mm. black and white scores. And then that quantitative, the, qualitative. Yes, exactly. And then that impact space, it is so, in some ways, so subjective. And so whoever comes up with a way to make that subjective influence um, quantitative will probably be a very famous person. <laughs> right. So, 
our million dollar idea challenge for absolutely absolutely and i think the only way at this stage is almost just to um you know from a health service point of view research is done on the health service you know the case uh reports afterwards not published ones but you know you know we did this research and the and the and found this and we were able to do this and we changed this and improved this as a like a case study summary um, is mm. perhaps the only way. Um, but for the broader uh, research that's done, oh, yeah, it's just a very hard, hard area. Yeah. Research on researching. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, does openness matter? Like, oh, it's certainly a big conversation in you know, libraries, academic libraries, self-libraries around um, the cost of journals, the cost of academic scholarship, the fact that we often fund it, do it, and then have to buy it back. Um, <laughs> and yet openness, despite its great promise, has also perils as well. There's you know, predatory publishing, there's just you know, reputational um, differences between something that is exclusive and only accepts 7% of submissions versus, yeah, we'll publish it, sure, give us two grand, go for it. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, is that a big question in the research community as well? Or? Yes, so I guess... Someone publishes, it doesn't matter? Well, I think there's potentially a little bit of that. Um, I think... Uh, you know, um, in the academic world, you know, the competitive journals are definitely the gold star ones are, you know, your preferred go-to. You know, if you are publishing in that, it's great. Um, but at that one level, at one layer, but then if you are thinking about the audience you're trying to infiltrate, which I'm not sure everyone does this, then open journals probably have a really important um, component to that. Um, uh, so, I mean, I guess, again, from working in sort of global health things, like if I was going to publish something on the health service of Papua New Guinea and the Lancet, you know, or something around that, or something around developing countries' health systems and things like that, you would want those in developing countries to have access to that, but there's very likely that they're not. So that's where an open journal does have its merits, that um, mm. you are able to access your audience. So I guess it's understanding your audience. Um, uh, and I guess assuming a level of altruism in what you're producing <laughs> and why you're doing yeah, it. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, so I guess, so yes, I think openness does matter. I agree that predatory journal stuff is very interesting um, and and can be quite, you know, confusing to start to, to, to uh, uh, people starting out. Um, but once, I guess, once you get the hang of it, you, you kind of do ignore it a lot more, um, would yeah. be my assumption. But, I, yeah, I'm still amazed by it completely. Absolutely yeah. amazed. So if anything, for me personally, again, this may not be the... 
uh, particularities of every researcher, but the audience is the most important thing when you're choosing a journal. Um, mm. Isn't that interesting? I, I would think. Uh, and I think that's classic with, like, the Australian health... health. What was that, sorry? Oh, sorry. So, yeah, not it's not necessarily it's, yeah, you know, prestige or it's, you know, index or... I might... I said I may sit the very left-wing of <laughs> the usual <laughs> academics or the, the usual uh, press uh, uh, push from uh, the academic industry, but... Like, I think I take the Australian Health Review, for example, and it's so fascinating that that journal is sits on the desk outside our chief exec. There's copies of it all across the health service, but it's, it's I think it's a tier two journal. Like, it's, a, you know, you're not getting much kudos if you're getting published in that at an academic level, but mm. holy moly, if anyone knew that it actually sit, where it sits and who's actually you know, walking past and reading it, it, you know, that would, I think, should change the impact of why they're, why or why not um, they're, yeah. they're uh, applying for it. Even more than something like the MJA, which is probably seen much more as a flagship journal for Australian health content, and yet... Absolutely, yeah. HR is, yeah. Yeah, but I think there's also very niche... Uh, audience that's reading that, and I think there's some, you know, some research does need to go on that because of those reasons. But if you are mm. talking about a, you know, uh, a pro, uh, a very practical project for practical impact, um, and the, you know, executive director of nursing, you know, time poor, you know, rarely rarely picks up a journal because that's just not, you know, scheduled into an exceptionally busy project or, you know, that project day, but um, they pick it up and read it because of it's sort of, you know, left on the chief exec's desk. That's, you know, a a more important place to have your work written, I would think. (laughs) I guess, you know, depending on what your topic is. Yeah, so I think that's a really good point to make and I think it's probably um, uh, a sense that maybe more journals could do as well is to describe their audience and to um, focus authors around that as well and, and give a sense of sort of that, you know, so authors submitting papers are thinking about their audience, yeah. but journals also are kind of describing their audience as well. I think that would be, yes. um, yeah, something that I probably haven't thought about as much as I might now. So. Yeah, no, that's a good point, very good point. So in terms of your own career, you talked about, you know, sort of the shifts in areas you've gone. Do you have a kind of formal approach to career development and um, you know professional sort of improvement as a as a researcher and as one who also supports others doing research yeah um, again I guess my career progression now will always be very different to if I remained purely in the university sector um, but I think it fits neatly with my personal choices <laughs> um, I I guess I see 
and I, I guess progression is more about experience in uh, this uh, working in this area as well as in research methods. I probably probably fit more on the fact that I'd rather be jack of all than master of one. <laughs> so, and I enjoy the you know the challenge of learning different methods and as due to uh, different research questions that have come up and that we can apply different methods to. So I hope to continue, I guess, exploring that kind of uh, thing. Um, but with regard to progression, um, because I'm a bit of a square peg and a round hole for uh, perhaps progression at university, I'd be interested to see <laughs> how they view me as the years go ahead. Obviously, I have affiliations with um, or junks with some of the universities locally um, and each year that will be renewed, they will say at what level I am. So that would be, be just, that's just interesting for me um, uh, to see what, what, how they will, what, what they will make of me, Daniel, <laughs> yeah. as the kids go on. Yeah. 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 And in terms of... Um I guess the novice researchers that you have worked with over the last few years, do you, like, is your role to continue to develop them or do you kind of let them fly and be free and then start again with new newbies or? I think if I let go of every, like, some are ready to fly and some even in novice times, you know, there was only so much, you know, support that was required yeah. and they were quite self sufficient. Um, it was just more, I guess, very much more mentoring support rather than hands on hand, hand on hand, you know, hand holding the whole way. So it is a, yeah, yeah some have been quite self sufficient from day dot. <laughs> and just, yeah, so, uh, but some, yeah, so no, there's no, I don't think there's a definite cut off line of where uh, my support yeah. and mentorship ends. Um, I think, you know, recognising uh, when, their skill set is beyond whatever more I could offer them, and part of my role would be linking them to that next level, that next um, person that might be able to to work with them to that, you know, to improve whatever their whatever journey that they're going on with research. Yeah, of course. Yeah, <clears throat> and yeah. if you had blue sky funding and you know, complete executive um, decision making. Are there things that you would love to do but aren't doing now? Uh, personally or for the health service? Sailing the wild blues of the Caribbean or something. But I guess in terms of building and expanding the research role is what I was thinking of. <laughs> um, and, you know, making that um, the best that it can be uh, and yeah, we've talked a lot about the constraints but you know, if you could shape it as it is in your mind, how would that look? Yeah, I think um, I think having access to more resources locally is, um, would be very important um, obviously we have partnerships with, with universities but as I was sort of saying that, that is somewhat two different worlds and I have realised
still need to have a little bit of a divide um, between external support that would be be calling on. So I would love to develop a research fellow workshop or the research support um, as a workforce. Um, and again, I guess with people who are like-minded or um, recognising that this is not a academic research career posting, but a support role. Um, so which sometimes, uh, not always, but sometimes a hard fit to find. Um, so I'd love to have, you know, access to an economist and by, you know, by statisticians and, you know, that we would have and manage locally would be great. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be fascinating? And then you could really broaden the scope of questions and oh, yeah. um, practitioners could then really tap into, yeah, just different um, skill sets and professional approaches and, yeah, and I think the type of questions that get answered then are even asked or considered and then move on to actual research projects. It would be yeah. so much richer. Yeah, wow. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Huh. Um, yes, that would be, yes, that would be great. <laughs> that would be great. But again, for every economist you employ, you don't employ two nurses or whatever. Yes, so, exactly. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. It's a, it's a tough, uh, yeah, it's a tough debate. <laughs> so can you see what, the future research will look like within the hospital in five years? Are we all publishing in open journals? Are we all where we are now? Are we has every researcher got it in their or every clinician got it in their PAD to complete a research well, project? Yeah, well listen I think I think it is about to rapidly change uh, once, particularly once people get their head around the fact that our goal is to become a university hospital um, and that definitely has a huge clinical research agenda uh, attached to it. Um, I think, so I think currently it's not quite so understood what that actually looks like, um, but um, as it gets more apparent, um, there will be starting to be a much greater push in, I guess, research savviness of the workforce. Um, I'm hoping uh, I'm hoping it starts earlier rather than later, um, mainly because <laughs> it's going to be, yeah, it'll be a, a tricky thing to navigate uh, in a very short period of time given we've got such a, a mixed bag of uh, workforce uh, um and research skill. So, yeah, so I guess, yeah, so in the future I can only see us expanding uh, um, in, in research endeavours. I'll be surprised if we don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But without, with actually, interesting enough, if we didn't have that on the card, if that wasn't on the card, um, it probably would be just, I guess, slow growth and, you know, slow recognition <laughs> um, yeah. yeah but yeah so if we are able to expand in the way that you're talking about 
what impact will that have on the wider healthcare service and healthcare delivery? And obviously, it's probably an impossible question to answer, but um, you, know, you have looked at healthcare delivery and impacts and that type of thing. So, um, yeah, like, will it change what we do and not just have yeah, more general article authors within the health service, but actually you know, change how we do care at the bedside and the bench side? Or? You would hope so. You would hope so. I think that's the ultimate Um but I think there's a, you know, a few steps that need to be put in place before we get there. Um, you know, I'd like, you know, to see even early on that recruitment strategies and the focus on clinicians with research skill should be start to be come a bit more to the forefront rather than just attached as a, a, a as a bonus. <laughs> Um, yeah, right. So, and even like even moving through to management levels, because if you don't have a manager who's understanding of has an understanding of research, how are they going to understand the argument for two hours of research time? You know what I mean? Like it's it's a it's, it's a very um, you, you do need to have that experience to. Um, to progress uh, in that area. So, yeah, I, I guess it's not answering about how I think it will be. It's about how I hope <laughs> it will start yeah. to evolve. Because yeah. if you've got a nest unit manager who, as you say, you know, doesn't have that experience and doesn't see the need for it, of course you're not going to free up offline time to no, no. go and do your SPSS analyses no. or whatever it no. might be of navigate ethics and, and all of that. No. Um, or, or appreciate the time and effort into navigating ethics and writing a protocol. Yeah. It's, yeah. So you may, you know, I think that you experience of that, realise that this is not just a one-night thing, it's actually a session <laughs> of time. <laughs> We've probably yeah. had one-night things across our desk. I'm sure we have plenty of times, yes. They don't That's tend to get curve. through the first time. Yeah. <laughs> it's a um, curve. Yeah, so like, research isn't just your role, is it? It's really systemic in terms of, like, you can only do so much. There's, It's got to be embedded throughout the health service in Absolutely. lots of different ways. And, and then we've got to communicate the outcomes of that and why that does um, is good for the health service and needs to be supported, invested in, yeah, resourced, done. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. So it's, it is an interesting role in that somewhat it's got a lot of technical components to it because it's the only one that does this as a full-time job. <laughs> mm. And But it also has, um, I guess, director, manager, Strategic component to it, so it's kind of a it's a triple. I'm sure I can say about triple, but that Daniel, you know that that's how they tend to run it out here. <laughs> we tend to double up with a few different roles within our one uh, one role description. <laughs> yeah, but that makes it really which is great. Isn't it? And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you're not just furrowing some sort of niche, but you're actually able to impact things on a systemic level so 
Excellent. Any other final thoughts, opinions? No. I think that's been great, Daniel. Yeah, me too. Oh, thanks very much, Hannah. No worries. Thanks for your time.